Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. We're back, ladies and gentlemen, to a special episode of the Film Stage Show, the usually movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I am your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have a still terminally ill Bill Graham. Whoa. <laughs> it's just getting sadder. And we have Michael Snydell. Hello. Hello. And we are here today not to review a movie, but we're going to, later in the episode, have a special guest, Ryan Raftery, who is the author behind the book, Best, or not the best, there I go, with my definite articles again, Best, period, movie, period, year, period, ever, period, How 1999 Blew Up Big Screen, that movie, or that book, <laughs> that book is out now, so you can pick it up at all fine booksellers and uh, online retailers. So we're going to have him here. We're going to talk about the book, the process of putting it together, the year 1999 in movies in general, and so much more. So we hope that you enjoy that. Before we get into it, though, the usual stuff. Find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show. Find us on Facebook. Search for The Film Stage Show. Go into the Apple podcasting app, I guess, and give us a comment and a rating. Email us, podcastfilmstage.com. Not only that, but don't forget to go to patreon.com to become one of our patrons so that you can help us produce more great episodes like this one. And, um, yeah, what else? You get access to our Slack channel for as little as $1 an episode. You also get access to our super cool raffles that we do all the time so you can get your hands on some movie stuff for free. It's a great Great, great way to support the show and to get yourself some cool stuff. So go again to patreon.com slash the film stage show. What else? Um, we are brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema, where every day their curators bring you a brand new film to watch and enjoy. You have 30 days to watch each film. So, of course, that means that you constantly have a rotating selection of 30 films to check out. We talked previously about the fact that Listen Up Philip is on there. And yes, we will be talking about the new Alex Ross Perry film soon. Because, yes, we will. As, as we said, I am stuck in a hell loop. What else have we got on here? We got Two Days in Paris from director Julie Delpy. They've also got their What is an Auteur series and their By NWR film of the day today is Olga's House of Shame which is a title that demands you to check it out. For a free 30-day trial of movie, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, a free 30-day trial of movie can be yours. All you got to do is go to mubi.com slash filmstage. You know, those buy and WR movies, they all look a little blue. <laughs> <laughs> Just a touch. <laughs> All right, so that's that. Now let's get into our wide-ranging interview with Brian Raftery, again, the author of Best Movie Year Ever. All right, the gang is all here. We have Bill Graham, Michael Snydell, and myself, and we are here today with a special episode of the Film Stage Show 
where we are talking to Brian Raftery. I did it. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) The author of Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, Brian Raftery, welcome to the Film Stage Show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm very big on doing shows that have other Brian R's uh, involved, so this is a this is a huge honor. This is a that's like our bread and butter. Like I find yeah. a person who's just like I've always wanted to podcast with a Brian R, and I'm just like, hey man, here I am. Let's do it. I'm doing I'm doing Brian Robbins podcast next week about the making of Varsity Blues. So that'll be very exciting. <laughs> I told Zillow to change my username because it's William G R, and I can't handle that, and so they're hopefully going to change it over to bill g um within the next couple of days what and so kind of, what kind of a madcap work environment do you have where they use the last <laughs> two letters of your last name for you know what? Well, unnecessary because, unimportant. because there's because there's someone else named william g that took the william g and so they had to give me a, a an extra letter and that's so that's why i terrible. want bill g <laughs> hopefully hopefully no no other jackass is named Bill G and then already took that because if I get Bill GR I'm going to be really pissed alright this is a movie <laughs> podcast and we should talk about movies but I do have a question for our guest as a as a fellow Brian R do people ever append the B onto the beginning of your last name to create a new name oh yeah I was. Uh, there are people who still call me B-Raft okay but they don't call me B-Raft oh, no. but yeah which sounds like B-Raft <laughs> But luckily, it does not happen a lot. It's better than when my boss, when I was in high school, I was very overweight, and my boss used to call me Big Bri all the time. And I was like, I think this is harassment. I don't think you're called Big. (laughs) And by the way, I work at a concession stand where you give me free hot dogs and Reese's Pieces every day. How how else am I supposed to be? I've had had B-Row. I've had B-Rowan. I've had Broen, which is my least favorite thing that I've ever been called. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I just had to know. I just had to know. But anyway, we're here to talk <laughs> about your book and fun. the year the year of movies, 1999, uh, which you boldly claim is the best movie year ever. How did you initially come to that diagnosis? Because that's one of those things that's in the ether, sort of. But I'm wondering if yeah. you just had a, like a, a come to Jesus moment with that personally. I didn't. I was very lucky in that in 1999, uh, I graduated college and I was an intern. My first job out of college was an internship at Entertainment Weekly. Um, And that fall, they actually did a cover story called The Year That Changed Movies. They were kind of, people were already sort of already talking about that year as it was happening. And I remember especially in the fall, um, there was this kind of crazy sort of sense of like, wait, we've just had The Matrix, uh, we just had Election, and now we're getting Fight Club and Three Kings and Magnolia's coming out. And it really did feel like, especially in those last four or five months, um, after, especially after Blair Witch and Sixth Sense had already kind of been these surprise movies, there definitely was this feeling that like, oh, this is a very interesting year. And I still think at the time we were all like, oh, this is a really good year. It was really a lot of good stuff and a lot of stuff to talk about and a really new class of filmmakers really interesting. But it was only in the last like five or 10 years where I started realizing just how special that was. Cause I was such a dope. I was like, well, every year will be like this. I mean, <laughs> I was out of college and I was seeing movies nonstop and I was like, well, movies rule the culture and they never, and you know, they'll never be, they'll never be overtaken by TV. <laughs> you know, they'll never, you know, they'll never sort of go back to the kind of crazy sequels and reboots mania they were doing a few years ago. So it's in the last couple of years when a year like 1989 seems more rare 
that I sort of came around to just how special it was. But certainly during that year, there was conversation among myself and my friends were like, oh my gosh, there's like, there's a really good movie every week at this point, which, which felt different than at other times in the nineties, I think. And so it, in deciding as a man who recently on Twitter joked about writing a book, did this (laughs) begin as a serious endeavor or did it start to start as a personal project that evolved? No, it was always a serious endeavor, but it was a different book at first. I it, like it, around 2016, I really started thinking a lot about 1999 and specifically Y2K. Um, and I think because Trump was running, I was thinking back to when he, you know, he ran for president in 1999, or he announced he was going to. Um, and I just started thinking about all of those events of that year. You know, some of them were terrible, like Columbine, and there were also things like, you know, the women's soccer team and Mia Hamm winning and, um, you know, Napster being launched. And I sort of, so the book originally was going to be sort of like 1999 as this very big culture changing year in general. And then when I met with, I talked to this editor, Simon and Schuster, who was like, why don't you just use the movies of that year? Because the movies were part of that idea. Why don't you just use the movies of that year to sort of tell the whole story of the, of what that year was like? And that sort of seemed a lot more exciting and so it was definitely like i I, it was always a very serious project because i had basically two years to do the entire thing (laughs) so i had to get going right i mean there was no kind of i mean messing about it's like the day the day we agreed on it i started doing interviews like the next week um so it was always like this very kind of quickly paced um very serious idea but i definitely wanted to do something about 1999 because i remember very vividly just how scared where people were of Y2K and just I remember a lot of those big in- incidents happening as I was very young and, and kind of realizing how important they were at the time. I mean, once you knew it was going to be about movies, did you kind of have a list or were you still kind of letting the cultural events and like the influences you wanted to talk about kind of dictate uh, the, the, you know, the, the movies that you picked? I think the movies were always going to, I mean, the main movies were always kind of no brainers. I mean, obviously you're going to write, you know, the matrix is going to be its own chapter, you know, sure. stuff like Phantom Menace and sort of that whole online culture of the late nineties movie nerdness, which I was a big part of as an observer was going to be its own chapter, you know, something like election. But I do think that it was only as I went, I mean, at certain points I would have these conversations with my editor and I was like, you know, the insider, we both love this movie. Can we make it a chapter? And then I started thinking more and more about, all the kind of corporate mergers in the 90s and how that kind of fed into the sort of atmosphere of that movie and how relevant that feels now. So certain movies grew bigger or smaller in the book as I was reporting. It also it also meant, you know, mattered a lot like who I could get access to. Um, and I got like 130 people, which is crazy. But, you know, there were certain movies that I really thought it, starting out, I was like, well, the South Park movie will be a chapter because you can talk about the MPAA fights and that movie is hilarious and insane. But, you know, when I tried for like a year and a half to get the filmmakers and I didn't, I was like, I can't really build a whole chapter around that. Um, but I was lucky in that I got almost everyone on like the main wish list. I think we got every single person on the main wish list except for a couple of filmmakers and Brad Pitt. And we, we got pretty close <laughs> with Brad Pitt. <laughs> so, so I was I was listening to a podcast with you on uh was it the watch? Yeah, the watch. Oh, with, yeah. Uh, 
uh, Chris Ryan and, uh, and Sean Finnessy. Yeah. And you had mentioned how that there's usually a snowball effect where, uh, when you get a certain director or certain actor to kind of give you an interview, they almost are talking behind the scenes. So when you call that next person, sometimes they know about you already yes. and they kind of already have that. Did you kind of work from that kind of like pyramid designed to try and like hit the heavy hitters last or were you just trying to just kind of come through them and then maybe round back around and, and try and, and get them on the second try or third try for a couple of them. Like I knew, like for example, so Edward Norton was actually one of the first people to say yes, but it took almost 19 months to get the interview to go, <laughs> um, uh-huh, which I think uh-huh. he, he was making a movie. He's, I mean, these people are all really busy. Sure. Uh, um, sure. That was the thing that was weird. It was like people would say yes, and then it would take months and months. But certainly, I think, you know, I lucked out early on in that, like, people like Kimberly Pierce and John August were the very first people to say yes. So that helped. I think what really helped was when Reese Witherspoon and David Fincher said yes, which was, which were both really early. And I was, I was really kind of shocked. They both said yes almost right away. Um, and once you have David Fincher, you you know, you have Steven Soderbergh. And once you have David Fincher and Steven Soderbergh, you have David O. Russell and Kim Pierce, you know, and same with Reese for getting these actors. Um, if you say, Hey, I got Reese with a spoon and I'm talking to Edward Norton, it makes it a lot easier. I mean, because people don't people don't want to be left out, first of all. Um, and publicists know that, but also I think people realize pretty quickly that that was kind of a, a year they wanted to talk about. And especially when you have the actors, a lot of whom were in their twenties. I mean, it's a fun part of their lives. It's the part when they're young and they're doing all this crazy stuff and they don't have kids yet and they're not married. And so it's a fun, you know, people like Josh Hartnett or Brendan Fraser, Kirsten Dunst. We we had really long, really fun conversations, not just about these movies, but just about being young in the 90s and what that was like <laughs> to be young in the 90s and to be making movies and watching movies. And I think once I think it's a lot easier to get more people once you have a couple people like that who can really just sort of say, hey, this is not a crazy person <laughs> Who's going to eat up all your time? And and honestly, when you say Simon and Schuster, because it's a Simon and Schuster book, that helps a lot. That definitely opens mm. a lot of doors. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So that certainly helped quite a bit. But Fincher and Fincher and, and Reese Witherspoon were certainly like those were two big gets very early on that really made things a lot easier for me. I, I do think it's it's really interesting. Just when you were saying about you know t- you know at one point I know Kirsten Dunst is like you know they don't make good movies anymore, but I. I I mentioned that because I think that the the epilogue is so fascinating in relation mm. to the rest of the book I, in, in terms of, you know, how you are obviously having these accounts from so many different people. But this epilogue, then you're contextualizing, you know, everything from American Beauty's Oscar win to, uh, you know, a, a Harry Knowles to uh, all, all sorts of things that now just have totally different perceptions. And so I'm just curious, like uh, – you know, I I have to assume that some of these people you were they were a little surprised that you went to them, you know, um, given that the, these films weren't always hits and things like that. So I I just wanted you to speak a little bit. Were some of these people like what was their perception when you came to them? You know, beyond just access, were there was it a different tone than you expected when they talked about these films? I think you know what's interesting is that so. Yeah, I think the Kirsten Dunst quote is like what happened in the movies, which I which I kind of like because she said it in a very poignant way. And sometimes sure. I feel that way. Um, and I think but I think, 
you know, when I, t- I think one thing when I would talk to these people and tell them what the book was about, maybe they didn't, you know, you always do this thing where you send, you know, I always try to tell the publicist, like, I never send questions in advance because I just don't want to do that. But here's a list of all the movies that year just so that person has it. And there were a couple of times when I'd be on the phone with someone and maybe I could tell they were looking at that list in an email and they're just going, wait, run, roll, run was that year? Wait, election was that year? Like, I think people... I think there were certain people like Fincher or Alexander Payne or Kimberly Pierce because they were as filmmakers, they were so in the thick of it. They know, I mean, filmmakers know year by year, you know what I mean? Like they're filmmakers are, are really deep movie nerds and they, they're always following each other's careers and probably jealously. So, and so when you say to Soderbergh 1999, he's like, well, and he can name like three or four movies from that year. Um, but the actors, I think because it's always sort of more loosey goosey, I think a lot of them were sort of surprised that that many, you know, just the number of movies that year. And I think once they kind of locked in, they were like, oh yeah, this was a really special year because they were going to these movies. I mean, they were going to, you know, these were young people who were going to see Blair Witch. They were just as caught up in the sixth sense as, you know, other people were. Um, So I definitely think that for the most part, I think there was, if they didn't already know what a special year that was, I think as we talked more and more and the list went on and on, they became kind of, um, they, they sort of realized how rare that kind of year is. Was there ever a point kind of, you know, jumping off from their realization of how good that year was that you sense like an iciness or a shift in the room that it suddenly became sort of like a wake, especially considering <laughs> the the way that people talk about some of the current years that we've had in movies? No, and I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I think there's certainly, um, you know, I it's weird because I reported, so a lot of those interviews were done, let's say, in the last two years. Um and, you know, a lot of people I talk to are now working in TV and doing really amazing stuff in TV. I mean, obviously, Kirsten Dunst is someone who, you know, is sure. I think she won an Emmy for Fargo. Did she win an Emmy? I can't remember. Um, but, you know, I would say Fargo is definitely the best thing she had done in a long time. I think she realized mm-hmm. it. So I think and obviously actualizing. Fincher, yeah. Um <laughs> And so I, I but I I don't think I don't think anyone was like, ah, movies suck nowadays. But I think everyone that I talked to, because a lot of them are working in TV, were very uh, aware of the fact that a lot of the cultural momentum in the last couple of years has shifted to TV because that's where they're getting their best job, doing their best work. You know, that's where their most jobs are. Um, you know, I think we're now almost five years since Fincher's made a movie, maybe six. I can't remember if Gone Girls was Gone Girls. Gone Girls is a terrible movie. Gone Girl, though, I think was like, what, 2014, 2015? <laughs> So it it feels like it's, you know, some of these, you know, Soderbergh is still making movies a lot, but I definitely think there definitely wasn't like a uh, movies are bad now. But I think hopefully that epilogue reads as a very kind of sober state of the nation and and other stuff in that epilogue was honestly stuff that happened as I was reporting it. I mean, like, sure, I. I had tried to get Kevin Spacey for an interview and they said no. And I was like, well, I'll go back. And then I was like, Oh, now I'm not going back. Uh, <laughs> with someone I really want yes. to talk for that all happened because he had a kind of a terrible 1999. I think actually his 1999 was the kind of the beginning of the end for, for Weinstein, for Miramax and for him. I mean, he, they didn't get Blair, Witch. they didn't buy it. They didn't understand it. You know, Harvey put out a lot of movies that year that were not great. And, then he had like a kind of a secret heart attack that year or whatever his medical ailment was and just kind of 
he had this backlash against all his Oscar bullying. So I felt like I really wanted to talk to him, and I was kind of dreading it because I was like, oh, i got to ask this guy who's famously an asshole about his worst year. And then when that happened, I was like, well, that's one uncomfortable interview I, I won't have. <laughs> now it's like on the list of questions you're going to ask Harvey Weinstein, it's like that's number 3,026. <laughs> um, so it was, it was hard to figure out, like, do you when you're writing the American Beauty chapter, do you fold all that in as you're doing it, sure. or do you save it? And so that was kind of that was a lot of back and forth because when people are reading the book, I didn't want to have them. I wanted them to read the book and sort of feel like they were in 1999 as they were reading it. I didn't want to pull back every three chapters and go. And then The Force Awakens came out and start. You know what I mean? Like I just wanted to yeah. keep them in the year and not pull out till not pull back until the end if I could avoid it. Was there a particular movie or even like a news event that when you realized that it happened in 1999, you had like a, a holy shit moment? I'd really forgotten about the battle in Seattle, um, which was, you know, this this really multi-day sort of, you know, anti-capitalist kind of mini you know riot that happened. And I just I just totally forgotten that it happened so close to Fight Club. Like I just had never <laughs> put together that, you know, Fight Club is a movie that ends with them literally blowing up credit card company headquarters. Um, and then shortly thereafter, there's this huge anti, you know, and also Fight, Fight Club is also famously kind of an anti-Starbucks movie. And the battle in Seattle was definitely people throwing windows through Starbucks, if I remember correctly. So I, I there were times where I was like, oh, man, I had totally forgotten about that. Um, and so when you can connect those those events of 1999 to the movies, it feels like it. it you're just sort of like, whoa, is this was this knowingly going on? Is this like, you sort of see how tightly the news cycle and the zeitgeist can be tied up sometimes in ways that you don't even realize. And I think also I had just forgotten that even though Napster really didn't take, really took off in 2000, I'd really forgotten that it had been invented in, in 99 and came out in 99, which to me, I didn't get into Napster too much in the book, but that certainly feels like such a pivotal, I mean, maybe it's a different book altogether, but that is such a pivotal cultural moment where all of a sudden all the stuff you wanted was going to be on demand in your brain 24 hours a day. Um, you know, that's kind of a remarkable idea the same year that the matrix comes out and this idea of just downloading information to your head. It's just, you can, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a stretch to connect those two, but it was always fun to be like, Oh, these things arrived at the same time and maybe it's coincidence, but maybe also there's something bigger going on. You know, I, I have to say this oddly made me feel a little bit better about a lot of the doomsday things that have been going on in the industry lately, whether you want to talk about right. the Disney merger or, you know, any number of, uh, yeah, of, you know, forecasting that's been going on about the end of Hollywood and, yeah. you know, you know, TV's ascension and, you know, any, any larger things that I'm also missing, but I, this this book almost made me feel <laughs> oddly better about it. And you certainly end on an optimistic note in the epilogue, but even generally just hearing about how many of these films were just put together by, you know, the skin of uh, the creator's teeth. Like yeah. <laughs> there's just a sense that so much of this was, um, y you know, a hail Mary, you know, everything from the matrix to, you know, like I never realized, for instance, I, how much the virgin suicides seem to be, you know, like at any point it could have fallen apart. Yeah. And, and I, I find that, I find that really fascinating considering I think we like to look at, or, or it's just, I guess a, a general tendency that we look back and like to think that everything was so, uh, stable and precise and put together at the time, but it was always, you know, mired in, in chaos. Yeah. I mean, all these movies were for the most part 
very I mean every movie is hard to make obviously but these some of these really were years and years and years of real hardship and you know someone like Kimberly Pierce making Boys Don't Cry that's like a four or five year research project that she never knew if she'd actually be able to make that movie um, and luckily there and, and she had a hard time getting anyone to finance it and luckily there was still even the late 90s this idea of like let's throw some indie money at this young filmmaker um, sure. but I I do think that like it is interesting that you know, I had a I, one of the, and I think I talked about this on the watch. Um, but you know, I talked, I had like a three-hour interview with with uh, Lorenzo di Bonaventura, who was mm-hmm. you know a tight of, he still is a huge dude, but in the nineties, yeah, you know, he was a major creative force at Warner Brothers, and just someone who knew who knew everyone and and knows how movies are made on that big scale. And you know, when he was talking about the end of the nineties and just sort of this idea of like too many sequels, all these genres dying, a lot of franchise dying. Uh, you know, he was the one who said, like, it's kind of where we are now. I don't think he was drawing that much of a direct connection, but, um, you know, this is such a cyclical industry and it changes. I think we're all, I think because we're all movie fans, we, we certainly have, a, and we're all a little vain. We're all like, well, we're certainly living through the worst of it. And boy, they had it better 20, 40, 60 years ago, but it certainly felt back then that something was actually a little bit broken too. Um, it's just that it wasn't, the worries of Netflix and it was, you know, they were, they were worried about video games back then. I mean, there's a lot of articles <laughs> in, the, in the late nineties where people are, you know, Hollywood's like, how do we compete with the, you know, with mist? How do we get people to get sure. off mist and doom uh, and, and all these major big games and, and get them to go back to see movie theater, see movies in the theater. So, and it's the same in the eighties where people are like, ah, home video is going to kill theatrical experience. And then in the fifties, TV is going to kill movies. There's always something that seems to be, threatening to kill the movie going experience and um you know i think right now it is a netflix is probably the biggest um scariest version of that in some time but it's also people are still going to the movies in 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 relatively insane numbers the answer to the missed question by the way is just wait 30 (laughs) minutes and they will get frustrated (laughs) and leave it on their own (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, listening to that watch interview, uh, one of the coolest things was, uh, listening about how Michael Mann basically demanded that you watch the insider at, you know, on the, uh, or is it Fox? I believe it's Fox. Fox Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. On the Fox lot. Um, did anybody else request that you like sit down and watch the movie again? Like, you know, a 35 millimeter print or anything like that? Or was that... I mean, yeah. I wish that was, that was, was <laughs> you kidding? Like, I could sit by myself in the Fox lot and watch, uh, and, and watch being John Malkovich in 35. No, no one. I mean, I think, but I think they all knew. I, I made it pretty clear, like, that I had seen these movies and I rewatched all the big ones at least four or five times. I mean, some and of those you times. You even did the commentary tracks and, like, the behind the scenes as well, right? <laughs> All that stuff, which I really dig, and I really, you know, it's it's amazing to me that commentary tracks. I feel like that was if there's one blessing of coming of age in the '90s, it's like I had, I had commentary tracks, and I had the time to. I mean, I would just watch them and listen to them, and they were, they were so helpful for this book. Um, but I think because you know, it's like I think the filmmakers knew. I mean, you're not going to reach out to Steven Soderbergh about the limey unless you're someone who really knows the, you know, or sure, for sure, Lem Dobbs, like. The screenwriter, you're not going to be like, I guess I should just ask him about this question, the limey. You know, it's like they know that I know that movie because I've probably I've watched it a gazillion times. Um, but no, my, I mean, Michael Mann, I respect the fact that he really wanted me to 
to to watch it. And I don't know how much of that was him trying to schmooze me a little bit or just like he just wanted to make sure that I'd seen it. But I, I was I had just rewatched it two weeks before, but I was like, I will definitely watch this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ask for bathroom breaks from the projectionist. It's the best way yeah. to watch a movie over an hour and a half long. <laughs> Um, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the behind the scenes features and and stuff like that. How much of that did you try to create original content, original interviews with these people versus some of these people are going to be hard to tie down for long periods of time. So you may not be able to really kind of get some of those nice juicy nuggets out of them. How much of like the back, uh, the, uh, background features. And I know you mentioned like entertainment weekly and, and some of the, and premier magazine and some of these others where you relied on kind of to fill in some of those gaps. How much, how much did you think that you had to create something original for each individual film or how much of it was just, Hey, there's a lot of information on this movie and this is great to put in a book period. I mean, I really wanted it to be as almost. I mean, if I if I could, I would have talked to every single person. Sure. In, in 2017, I really wanted the bulk of it to be from original interviews. At the same time, you know, I it's like so. For example, I I talked to I interviewed Sam Mendes very early on, actually way before the Kevin Spacey stuff. Um, but then, like you know, a year and a half later, I would find like an amazing just tidbit about American beauty in some. You know, I, I think my favorite thing I found about American Beauty was there was a Conrad Hall interview where. And where they were talking about how they filmed the house, like it was some beautiful like suburban house on a back lot, and then Conrad Hall was like, "Yeah, but it was infested with rats." And I was like, "Oh, I love that detail." <laughs> and you know, I yeah. can't get Sam Mendes back on the phone to be like, "Tell me about the rats." But um, isn't that just I mean, Hollywood in a nutshell, right there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I know it's it's it was for the for the handful of people I couldn't get, like Pitt or Brad or Paul Thomas Anderson, those old interviews are gold, and also like that's my favorite thing in the world. Like if the rest of my life was someone was like, here's a job where you read old magazine articles and find out about uh-huh. movies. Like, Oh yeah, I'll do that for the rest of my life. I'll just like, I'll retire at 85. And uh, even that. Will be- <laughs> so I love doing all that. And also a lot of stuff's not online. So really to just sit, get up early in the morning and just read old magazines and just, you're using a highlighter, you're pulling out your, you know, I take pictures on my phone of like really good paragraphs that I want to pull or ask someone about. Um, the research is part of the fun. And also like when you listen to like the fight club commentary where it's, um, you know, it's Norton Pitt and Fincher in the same room. And I think Helena bottom Carter is in a different interview, like just listening to Fincher and Pitt and Norton riff on each other is really instructive to what their collaborative collaborations like. I mean, you get a sense of what it's like to be in the room with those three guys back in the late nineties and you, you couldn't get that now, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's hard to get that access. It's hard to get that access, and also just it's hard to recapture that vibe. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. these are there were three guys who, did, you know, their only responsibilities at that point in their life was really the movies, and they could sit there and bullshit over Fight Club for two and a half hours and and have fun, um, and say stuff that probably would get them in trouble now. Um, so those kind of research material, it's it's so much fun. And for your listeners who like have old DVDs, like going through and just putting on an old commentary track on a movie that you've seen a million times and you think you know, mm-hmm. if it's a good commentary track, it's. It's so much fun. Like I, I at times would listen to them while uh, for a walk. I'll just like put on a commentary track, um, just because I love listening to filmmakers and actors talk about how they make things. Mm-hmm. Was there any Ryan? movie that? <laughs> I guess one of the hard things about this is like we keep talking about like all the amazing movies that there are, and there are maybe some movies that are considered amazing, but that you personally don't 
find that amazing <laughs> and you don't have to name them. Oh, Green Miles is definitely one that he talked about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Green Miles is easy. Well, you know, it's it's not a matter of not liking them, but the hardest chapter by far was was the teen movies because these were not my mm. these were not my teen movies. Like mm-hmm. I was 23, 24, and I was I was not going to go see. I think I saw American Pie in the theater because that was just so big. But I <laughs> I didn't see Ten Things I Hate About You until a couple of years later. I certainly didn't see She's All That until it came out on video and probably was just on, on a lark. Um, so I and I don't, I'm not dismissing those movies, but it's it's very hard to write about movies that are that specific to the viewer's experience when you're right. when you've aged out of that experience. Um, so that was really hard to do. And and I and I enjoyed all those movies. I mean like really like Varsity Blues, I'm like, that is a weird, interesting movie. That's a very strange film. Um and I kind of dig and I can kind of get why it was a huge hit. Um but those but it's much harder for me to write about that than to and it and the book's not a critical book, but also just just to understand it where you're like I know what it was like. I know what it was like to sit in a theater and see Three Kings. I know what it was like to sit in a theater and see Being John Malkovich and be like, "Wow, this is insane." Um, I didn't have the experience of sitting there and watching, um, you know, Ten Things I Hate About You and falling in love with Heath Ledger. I just it just wasn't in my wheelhouse at that point. Um, so that was tougher to write about. And stuff like American Beauty, which you know, I think I talked about this in the watch. You know, I really didn't like that movie when it came out, but and I was kind of dreading revisiting it. But I really I found things that I actually liked about it, which really surprised me. Um, and I don't know. Movies age well; they age badly. You bring, you know, you. It's it's fun rewatching stuff as a forty-something-year-old that I may have dismissed as a twenty-something, or rewatching something that I loved when I was in my twenties and being like, eh, I don't know. Um, I think that's why it's fun to like revisit all of these movies every ten, twenty years or so. Um, but there wasn't. I mean, the movies that I thought were just really junky, like The Green Mile. I don't think is a good movie, but also. Is would anyone really read a whole chapter in the green? You know what I mean? Like it's not a movie that that or Cider House Rules. It's just it's not a movie people are going to want to read a whole thing sure. about. Whereas the Phantom Menace is a bad movie or flawed movie that people will want to read about. You know because it's so huge. You know, yeah, there's speaking a, of, uh, Rowan. Please go ahead. <laughs> thank you. Um, there's a collateral uh, uh, concern that people should be aware of reading this book is that you will. Every once in a while, I'll have to put it down to go watch the movie that you just read about. <laughs> there was that would a point, make me happy. Yeah, there was a point when I just was like on my letterboxed and I was like chalking down election and I looked back and I was like, yeah, yep. I got to stop reading this book. <laughs> I need to take a break because uh, I just I can't continuously go through all the movies of 1999. Every time I read one, I'm like, oh, I love that movie. I should watch 10 Things I Hate About You. I should watch Varsity Blues. I haven't seen The Matrix in a while. And it just... Uh, <laughs> yeah. So people should be aware. Uh, definitely get the book, read the book, enjoy and love the book. But uh, get ready to start working out those subscription services because <laughs> you're going to want to see these things. Yeah, half these movies are not on streaming too, or at least they're not on Netflix, which is which is also frustrating for people who want to start rewatching Eyes Wide Shut at 4 in oh, the morning, I, I guess. I paid money for some stuff. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Michael, you had a question you were going to ask? Yeah, I, I was going to say, um, you know, it's not necessarily a, a bad film, but one I did want to say that's aged in kind of an odd way. And I wanted to I, I wanted to compliment you for how well you handled it is uh, Boys Don't Cry, mm-hmm. which is a yeah. film that has had such a, you know, it, it's had an interesting trajectory, especially as um, transgender people have, you know, have gotten more visibility. And, and I specifically have seen a couple transgender writers who have taken it to to test for a number of reasons but i i did think that was 
that was one that seemed to have a little bit more um, inner conflict. And I, I just wondered if you could speak a little bit about uh, was doing that chapter a little bit different, even in the interviewing period, because it, it just it has a little bit different tone in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly it, I, I I was very aware because there's, you know, at the time I was writing the book, I was reading a lot of really smart uh, critical thinking from transgender critics on boys don't cry. Um, and it was, it was the same problem I'd had with other parts in the book where it's like, well, do you, do you jump ahead 20 years later? Um, you know, and I, I, do you sort of address the fact that, you know, this is, this is not a transgender performer. And I think in 2019, I think if boys don't weirdly as, as tough as boys don't cry was to make in the nineties, I actually think about out of a lot of these movies, you could make that now. I actually think that, I mean, maybe it wouldn't mm. be a film, but I do think that um, there might be more, certainly the idea that they were getting, that Kimberly Pierce and the producers were getting rejected because no one wanted to, no one understood, you know, what a transgender character was and didn't want it and felt weird about it. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of transphobia that was going on at that point. I think we've moved past that. And I actually think, I think, you know, you could maybe make, do that story now. I think you could do the Brandon Tina story now. I do think there would be a um, a call for a trans performer to do that. Sure. Um, what I was trying to do was knowing that there's been a little bit of a pushback against Boys Don't Cry. Um, I just wanted to tell the story of how they made it in the '90s. You know what I mean? I sort of felt like if the parameter of this chapter is how do they make this movie back then? Because I do think people who are very young and are fr- and are, are frustrated by the movie and by its casting choice. I would at least want them to have a resource like this is the parameters in which this film was made. This is the parameter of the time in which it came out. Um, And I'm not saying you're right or you're wrong for feeling the way you do, but this is just, here is the story of why and how it was made. I felt like if you just laid that out um, rather than going through sort of like a, having me of all people comment on what it means to have a, you know, what, whether it's depiction of a trans character is accurate or honest or not. I felt like that wasn't my place. Um, so I hopefully, I mean, hopefully, I mean, I also, I, I really do like Boys Don't Cry, and I recognize that they're the, what people have problems with it. With I do think it's a weirdly an underrated movie from that year. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff that's very beautiful. I think the relationship between the young performers and the characters is really moving, um, and it's an yeah. it's an important movie. And I wanted that, I always wanted that book, that movie to have its own chapter, or to lead a chapter, to really anchor a big chapter. So. You know, um, there, there was definitely that was one I I agonized about because you're like you're like I just want to get this right. I want to get the story of the movie right, and you also want to get you want to make sure that people who are reading it are are at least approaching it with an open mind as to how and why this movie was made. It it is fascinating too. Just the the last thing to say about that is like you know you talk to people like Allison Anders there, and you know like a number of directors who or specifically female directors who've worked on a shoestring budget. So it's, it's just fascinating how that also comes in contrast to most of the book, which is a lot about blockbusters and, and things like that, you know, with the exception of something like Blair, Witch. uh, so it, it, it is just interesting, uh, how particularly that film, um, work works in contrast to what, you know, conversations we're having now again about uh, female directors and uh, about people or excuse me, about women uh, getting the chance to direct. Um, I, I'm yeah. rambling now as usual. <laughs> but no, Michael okay. Steidel rambling? I just wanted to say. What? Yeah. Well, it, it, well uh, to to ask you guys, as well, I, I mean, Rowan, did you also feel that that chapter was a, had a little bit different uh, – tint to it or do you think i'm coming at this in an unfair way no i agree with you 
I would have said something if I disagreed with you. You know that. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I um, I uh, part of me just wants to say, just for the, the sake of saying it, because rarely do I get to speak to the author of a book that affects me in any kind of way. There's something hmm. kind of beautifully nostalgic about this book that subverts all the only ninety ki- only nineties kids will remember or understand X. Hmm. And then, like, a mm. picture of a koosh ball. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you, were, you grew up in the 90s if, like, this multicolored translucent phone where there's gears inside of it, like, makes your heart beat. Um, so <laughs> one of the things that I enjoyed most about this book was kind of having to retrace in my own memory when I first saw all of these movies mm. um, and what the circumstances of those were. Because in 1999, I was uh, 11 turning 12. And so I, uh, I kept thinking to myself, like, I know I saw these, but like most of them I saw in my house and many of them I saw with my parents. (laughs) And so I just had these, these crazy memories of like, going to the video store with my mother and having her ask like, the super cool, like comic book comic book guy but you know at a blockbuster about bringing out the dead and (laughs) him being like yeah i don't know about that one ma'am i don't i don't think that's the one that you want yeah mark mark anthony's performance is a little broad (laughs) ma'am and then how does 11 year old um, brian like the insider (laughs) well it was you know it's it's weird because i had the previous year or that year i don't remember when um we had one of those like free weekends of hbo and my parents recorded on VHS the Thin Red Line because I really wanted to mm. see it. And they just ah. didn't know any better. <laughs> but that movie is the movie that kind of opened me up and, like, turned me into a cinephile. So, like, there's this very weird That was the beginning town. of your Malik adoration? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and so there's this very weird, like, kind of border town for me that is 1999 because it's like, on the one hand, I wanted to see Galaxy Quest because it looked super goofy and fun. Mm. On the other hand, I also wanted to see Magnolia because, whoa, what a weird looking movie that is. And then like Eyes Wide Shut was just like this weird thing where it's like from Master Stanley Kubrick, like his mm. recent movie with Tom Cruise. And so there's a lot of accessing myself and my memories from that time that just like really – kind of like turned me inside out at times and i had to like Mm -hmm. put the book down and just be like when did i see the iron giant like was that one of the ones we went out to the theater for or was it not and um so awesome work thanks (laughs) and i'm curious if in writing it you had kind of an ideal experience that you wanted the reader to have like something like that or more of an academic thing or just overall appreciation um, I did, you know, we really did try to write it so that people who were alive in 1999 would be reminded of what that was like. Um, and I also wanted to write to people who were very young to kind of understand, you know, we have these sort of interstitials in the book where we're kind of pulling headlines and sort of news blasts from what was going on to sort of contextualize for th- for people. Yeah. Um, but I did, I did, you know, I'm, the weird thing is if you write a book called best movie year ever and it's about 1999, it feels um, facetious to say this, but I I'm I really did not want to write like I did want to write like a '90s nostalgia book because I think one thing is when I was going writing this book and sort of rethinking the '90s, um, there were a lot of things going on that were making me think. You know what? The '90s was a lot of um, when I think of the '90s now, I really 
I sh- certainly I think of Kush balls and light up phones, but I also, you know, I also think of a lot of things that I watched when I was very young, like the like the Anita Hill hearings or um, Columbine or a lot of other really or the L.A. riots. And I'm like, you know, boy, those were a lot of warning signs that maybe my generation didn't always do the best job of, of taking as seriously as they could. And they were kind of all flashing again um, while I was writing this book. So I'm I've always been a little careful about like the nineties were really fun. There was a good time. It was also a very, very troubled time that with, with a lot of problems we didn't solve that are now kind of still kind of hitting us 20 years later. But I certainly wanted people to sort of at least remember their own experience of that year. Um, so, and I'm glad you were able to plug back into it. Cause I do think, um, one thing about these movies is that they were so big and they stayed on the screen for so long, or they had such big video lives that, most people I know, even if they weren't big movie fans or didn't stay watching, remember where they were when they saw some of them. I mean, they remember who they were with. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I remember specific theaters. And I mean, I've been telling friends, like, you know, we saw Three Kings that second week and I took you and my friend's like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah, we went to the uh, theater up at 56 in the park. <laughs> um, and they're like, why do you remember that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I I can't name more than five members of like Bush's cabinet now, but like I can tell you exactly uh, what showing a Fight Club we went to on Friday night and where we, where we had dinner afterward, because these movies are kind of burned into into my brain, uh, and the experience of seeing them is burned too. And I think that happened a lot in the '90s pre pre internet when you didn't just walk out of a movie and check your phone. You just sort of walked out of a movie and you wandered around talking to someone. Yeah, mm-hmm. I am. Um, I have very vivid memories of all the group dates that I went on. And the movies that we saw on them. So, like, I don't... What is it? The sum of all fears. I know exactly where in the theater I was sitting and who I was sitting next to. Mission Impossible 2, the same thing. It's a, it's very strange. It's weird how your brain correlates memories like that. Um, uh, it's important. It's a big... Movie going is a... It's, you know, it's a... It, it, that's one thing now when I keep reading about the movie going experience going away. I'm like, but it's so great socially. It's like mm-hmm. so many of the fun pre before I had kids. It's like that was my social life with like my wife and my friends and my brother and my family. It's like that was just like the thing. We just went to the movies all the time. It's like that's what you're going to go do. Um, so it, no wonder it sticks with you. I mean, it's I think for people who are big movie lovers, it's just the whole experience. It's not just the movie. It's just the whole experience sort of stays with you for a long time. So on that um, note. We did say that we wanted to talk about our top three movies of 1999. Sure. All right. So uh, you wrote the book, literally. Do you want to give us your top three? Uh, Well, my top top ten is constantly changing, and now my top five is kind of changing, too, because I've done a couple interviews, and I realize I've given different responses, but... But number one has always been the same, and I and I it's I really love Election. I just think I had to watch all these movies a lot, and there were definitely mornings I'd get up really early before my kids woke up, and I was like, I really sort of don't want to grapple with Fight Club at five o'clock in the morning in the middle of winter. <laughs> um, but every time I put on Election, I was like, this movie is delightful. It there's always I always find something new. If someone were to say to me, cut five minutes of Election or even like one minute of Election, I'd be like, I don't know how you do. That. You know what I mean? It just feels like every part of it uh, is. Every part that's there is perfectly polished and needs to be there. Um, and I just think that movie feels like it was made recently. It just all the stuff it's trying to tackle, uh, which is class and gender and, pol- and the American pol- political system and political machines and education. I just feel like it's all in there. So that's that's kind of consistently been my my number one. And my number two is usually being John Malkovich. Um, mm. I just, I, you know, it, it stayed with me forever. I saw it multiple times. I think I saw it multiple times in the theater. I definitely 
watched it on video a gazillion times when it came out. And I just, that's another movie that I feel like it's deeply funny. It's dealing with a lot of stuff. I mean, we talked about Boys Don't Cry, but you know, being John Malkovich has a whole transgender subplot too, which at the time I remember being really shocked by. Um, mm-hmm. And and I remember, you know, I remember the, the audience laughing in New York when when Cameron Diaz says she's in the wrong body. And I, it was it was a pretty it's a pretty radical movie. It's also super funny, and um, it's never been copied or no one. You know, I mean, no one you can't imitate that. It's so singular. It's um, not one of those movies like Groundhog Day where it's like, well, it's Groundhog Day, but it's on a plane, or it's yeah, Groundhog yeah, Day, exactly. but yeah. you know, with millennials. <laughs> Yeah, it's not it's it's not it's own it's its own genre that you will never be able to copy. Um the Charlie remember, Kaufman genre. <laughs> yeah, the Charlie, I mean even Charlie Kaufman doesn't I mean he his genre changes every movie. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then I it's always like the number three spot is always kind of like Fight Club is in there, though if you say you love Fight Club, it makes you sound like a sociopath, which I'm not. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I I love I really you know, maybe I don't know, maybe it is Three Kings. Um which I just really also remember that for me was just a very um, pivotal film. It was I my generation. I was like in my early twenties at that point. I don't think I'd thought about the Persian Gulf War that closely, or 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 been. I don't know. I don't think I don't think it had been depicted in a way that kind of called out to question my own recent history. You know, you're so used to when you're younger, you're watching war movies. It's about World War Two. It's something distant. Um, and even I liked MASH when I was a teenager. But I was like, I don't this is this conflict is decades away from my life. Whereas Three Kings, it's it's first of all, it's insanely funny. It's funnier than it should be. Um, it, it looks great. That sort of bleached out process that they use looks looks really great. Mm-hmm. But I also just like the fact that like it just it's it's such a insane act of insurrection to use Warner brothers tens of millions of dollars to make a, an anti U S government movie. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think just the ballsiness of that movie uh, really wins it over. The, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't know, boys don't cry is in there. Fight clubs in there. The insider. I love the insider. Um, so it's tough. How about, how about you guys? I just want to say that <clears throat> talking about like the Persian Gulf war, I remember that that was happening when I was very, very young and the way that the news covered it, was like a football game <laughs> and <laughs> I am um, yeah, that was that was around the start of of the 24-hour news cycle with CNN and all of that yeah yeah, yeah. and I I had um I found once a a folder because I as a child as most children are I was fascinated by the military because it's like guns and strong men and like cool machinery and I found a, a folder into which I had placed news clippings about the the Gulf War and pictures of like the Abrams tanks and the jets and everything. Cause like they were really going into like, this is what we're using there. Yeah. And so when I saw three Kings, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, that's real. so interesting when you, when you think about that, I think that's why the movie really rattled me because I think, cause I had really the 24 hour news cycle you were talking about. I, I, had, I had come to think that, well, I know everything about the war because I watched all the news and they were telling me what was happening. And then you, I watched Three Kings and I was like, wait, why were we? Why, why did we do this? Like, I just watched this as though it were a TV show. I didn't really think about the bigger picture, you know, the bigger picture issues of all that. And I didn't understand world history. So to have a movie like that, that's so anti-authority and just, it's, you know, it's like it sounds lame to be like a 23 year old and be like, this movie just blew my mind. It makes me rethink the world, but it, it kind of did. And it spoke to yeah. a very, um, I think the fact that it came out after Columbine too. And it was that, that mm. scene where you watch a bullet go through the soldier, the, the guy's body. And it's yeah. just like, it's, yeah. it's, it just, the, it really hit me very hard, it, but it's also very funny. And I just think, 
I, I admire a movie that mixes up that many tones. Uh, uh, it's just in styles. It's it's it's, it's such a mishmash. Uh, no pun intended, but it really works. All right, Michael Snydell, what about you? I, you know, I real I'm realizing that one thing I wanted to say about my experience with this book is because I'm a I'm a youngin. <laughs> I was I was uh, eight in 1999, so. Um, I was pretty young and I really, Look, man, we don't, we don't control that. <laughs> <laughs> I, a lot of these films, it's weird. I experienced them as, uh, as torrents that were mm. really bad quality. <laughs> so oh, three Kings was one of them. Um, the insider, the talented Mr. Ripley, you know, uh, election. Like I can remember torrenting those <laughs> and they were often like, you know, maybe 480 <laughs> like, yeah. so so no. many of these films i have like such a distorted view of what they actually looked like um so i on to my actual rating after i've shamed myself here uh my number one is actually uh david lynch's the straight story which mm. might actually be my favorite david lynch film um and it's a really weird pick. <laughs> it's Michael. I mean, we're lucky we've heard of any of these. <laughs> so, so glad I'm on this podcast. We're also lucky uh, that we're getting them in a vaguely numerical order. <laughs> so, I, yeah, it's it's the story of a widower and a 70 year old man. It's based, or based on the true story of a widower in his 70s who uh, rides across. Um, from Iowa to Wisconsin in a lawnmower. Mm. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a, like a, it's Disney produced. It's a, it is it's a Disney produced. Film. <laughs> it is a Disney produced G rated David Lynch film with an absolutely terrifyingly uh, gut wrenching scene about um, dealing with the trauma of war, even though you don't see anything, but uh, oh, that's, yeah, that scene's amazing. I mean, you know, I hate to say it, I had to cut the movie out of the book. I actually met with Mary Sweeney and interviewed her, and she's super smart and fantastic. But we just, I couldn't find a way to get that into the movie. theme. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at one point, I think we had a chapter where we were going to try to do Magnolia, American Beauty, and Straight Story, and, and try to make it about movies about the American family. And then when that didn't work, it was just hard to get that in there. But it's a really, it's a really, um, it's a really sweet movie. It's really moving. That scene that you're discussing about, is that when the two veterans are, they're both sitting yes. there at the bar? That's, yes. that's a harrowing scene. Um, yeah. But you know, one thing is Mary Sweeney is, would sort of mention, she's like, you know, Disney picked that movie up. Like it wasn't like, it wasn't like a, it was a, it was an over, it was a European production that Disney wound up distributing. So I think, I think that was the one thing she was like, people think it's a, that David Lynch went to Disney and pitched this. And that, <laughs> that was not the case. <laughs> Yeah, that, no, I, I really hope more people can see it. It's not available on any streaming, and I'm not even sure it's available to rent, but you could probably buy the DVD somewhere. According it's, to yeah. IMDb, it's on Prime Video for two ninety nine. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, no, I really hope more people see it. It's Yeah, I agree. It's a good movie. Fantastic. Uh, then my second is in the book. <laughs> it's The Virgin Suicides, mm. uh, yeah. which is a movie that I just had a, a – it's one of the first movies I can remember having like a very strange, like enigmatic connection with like mm. a finding it's like view of mental illness and suicide 
and all of those things. It was just I hadn't seen something like that that felt so potent and also was so <laughs> interested in giving me any answers about it. So that's something I saw – uh, when I was much younger and then revisited and just kind of realized how much it meant to me. And the third is um, similarly one that I came to a little bit later. Uh, and that's the matrix, which my mm. parents wow. would not let me see, even though I was obsessed with everything about it. I saw that uh, movie with my parents. That's, they like, <laughs> I saw it with my parents as well. I saw it rented on a DVD yep. or, uh, I guess VHS maybe at the time I had to convince them to see it because they were kind of stringent against me watching like rated R movies. And then really? we fucking like sit down and watch it. And it's just like, wait, why was that rated R? Like that's still, still like ingrained in my brain that like, <laughs> why the fuck was I denied seeing this in a theater? Like as a 13 year old, well, like I don't a know. lot of people. I, yeah. <laughs> but people. like, it's not a bloody, like, yes, it is. Film. Uh, oh, no, okay. like I, I still vivid. No, I, Bill, I'm sorry. I, I vividly remember, Around Christmas, they were showing The Matrix constantly on like TNT or something. And it was the scene where one of the characters is in the setup and they're just shot repeatedly. And they're like convulsing as yeah. they're shot and 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 like blood splat splatters like or blood spots like keep um Sorry, uh, keep showing up on the sweater. And I just remember my dad being like, what the hell is this? It was just this <laughs> very strange uh, moment. And um, I legitimately I, cannot remember what the the rubric that my parents would use to choose what <laughs> movies that like I was allowed to see. Because like, we didn't see it in the theater. They rented it and were like, heard this is good. Want to watch it? <laughs> <laughs> this and, also reminds me that the first R-rated movie I ever saw was 48 Hours. Which my wow. I don't think my parents knew what forty eight hours was like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so their rubric wasn't great either. But uh, yeah, those are my three. <laughs> All right, Bill Graham. Right. Um, sure. Okay, The Matrix is my number one. Um, I think it's it's just a, a, a ballsy movie. Um, I think it's even more interesting now thinking about the directors and, and their kind of trajectory after, after this film uh, to think of how hyper masculine it kind of is. And then also to understand that like the character of switch was originally supposed to be like a transgender who, you know, switches literally once they get into the matrix um, and like all of these things that kind of uh, swirl around this film. Um, unfortunately, it's got kind of that same syndrome that fight club has where people have kind of latched onto it for the wrong fucking reasons, whether it's like the red pill idea or, you know, all this other bullshit. But um, I just think it's just flat out one of my favorite films endlessly watchable um i think it's got like a, a tight two hour ish runtime which is like if you know me from this podcast then you know that's that's what i'm all about um two hours or less and yeah <laughs> i i think I just it, it satisfies in so many different ways whether it's as a sci-fi fantasy film whether as it it's as like just a kick-ass action film or like even like a quietly like subtle love story that doesn't 
always kind of like ring true, but it still works because of the chemistry between the two actors. So yeah, I, I just, I really dig that movie. Um, the second one is going to be the iron giant. Um, Mm. you, you just can't go wrong with, with everything that that film kind of stands for. And, you know, it's, it, it, it has such a fascinating history as well that is just truly, you know, whether you like watch the documentary that just recently came out um, on the special edition, like DVD and Blu-ray and stuff like that. Um, or just like understand like how many, how nineties that film is, whether it's got like Jennifer Aniston as a, as a voice (laughs) character and then like Vin Diesel, you know, it's just like, it's, it's just got so, so such a 1999, uh, tone and, and feel to it that it, it really is something different. Um, and then my last one is, uh, toy story three, or uh, sorry, Toy Story Two, which like shouldn't be a good movie at all, and like was basically rescued from the depths of like being a straight to DVD or straight to I think it might have been straight to DVD um, uh, film that Pixar kind of rescued from the brink and yeah. decided you know at the last minute to kind of bring it back in house and to do it right and that's that's really kind of cemented because that has been for the longest time until like cars came by and made all the fucking money that was really kind of their mainstay the one franchise that they just couldn't go wrong with that they kept cranking out sequels for and that everybody just kind of loved and that film almost was a complete and utter disaster more than likely i mean you know Mm. like i can't I can't see what that that original creation probably would have ended up being had they not done that. But it's it's a fascinating film to think about and to think of like the trajectory of Pixar back then and now Disney owns them and you know they just can't seem to do anything wrong. Hmm. All right. Um, so I have three different lists and I think I've decided to go. I, I themed my lists <laughs> and I'm going to go with the best or my favorite movies from 1999 that i saw in 1999 as though i were still choosing with the brain that i had in 1999 you're pulling a real me here <laughs> yeah that's that's some weird shit man yeah i'm, I'm like if i could go back and ask 1999 brian hey man what are your favorite movies that came out this year um i assume first he would say oh my god that's what we're gonna look like in 20 years and then he would say <clears throat> the iron giant for all the reasons that have been said. Um, and that also is probably would be one of my favorite now, just because I still watch it with my daughter. We both get a good cry out of it. Um, <laughs> Galaxy Quest? Hell fucking <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just because yeah. I have a very vivid memory of watching that film with my father. And not only is it just a hilarious film that he and I will still quote to each other all the time, but that's just one of those like good movie memories that I will carry with me until the day that I die. And um, finally, Office Space. <laughs> hmm. uh, a movie that I, I saw with my two best friends. And we had this kind of moment of like, I feel like we're getting away with something because we're watching a movie that's clearly not meant for us. 
We still find it <laughs> funny. And also, again, a movie that has carried itself inside of my heart the more and more that I have had to, like, just realize that I'm never going to make money, you know, doing anything but sitting in an office. <laughs> Though, the, so that's one of the movies where I read the chapter and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to watch Office Space. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sitting there and I was like, you know, yeah. what's crazy is that I am so jealous that he has a cubicle. <laughs> because <laughs> i live in, or i work in an open office plan and it's just worse and i just found myself really wishing that i had his walls yeah that's the one thing about the irony of that movie it's like it's supposed to be the apex of hellish office culture and then we all got the internet and open office plans and we're like oh this can get so much worse yeah he it's like, like pushes down office space, they leave at the end of the day yeah it's like they go home and they don't have the internet he pushes yeah. down that <laughs> cubicle wall and it's like a thrilling moment where it's like, I'm busting down the walls. I can look out the window and I'm just like, no man, put it back up. <laughs> <laughs> Life will get it's, it, like just unbelievably worse once that wall is gone. <laughs> so yeah, that's my, uh, 1999 picks that I saw in 1999 that I would have chosen back in 1999. And maybe I'll post my other lists on Twitter with their attendant insane criteria. <laughs> is there a wild one on either of those other two? I bringing out the dead is on one of them okay mm. yeah i feel like that's the wildest oh cruel intentions is on another one of them <laughs> nice <laughs> that's a so, fun movie that so is a brian, bananas movie brian i'm kind of curious you know um oh. leading up to this book and kind of doing the podcast on it and i mentioned this in another podcast that we did kind of uh hyping this one up a little bit but it's been really really interesting to see that this book really uh, i don't know if this was the the reason that all of these lists started coming out or if it just happens to be coincidence but like a lot of websites and a lot of different places were really honing in on 1999 and you know obviously it's the 20 year mark and things like that and so there were a lot of anniversaries this year but it's been really surprising how many different websites and places really jumped in and and started carrying the torch of 1999 being just one of these truly memorable uh, film years. And I'm curious, you know, a lot of that was kind of tied into your book as well that I saw some of the coverage from. Hmm. What was it like experiencing, like, you know, a book takes such a long time to write and, and create and then make and then launch into the world. And you were basically launching right in the middle of everybody else being like, wasn't 1999 a fucking great year, you know? And it's just like, Oh shit, there's now a book about that. Like how, how coincidental does that feel that like you just, a, you had a ton of coverage, but B like everybody else was jumping on this. Uh, it was great. I mean, the thing is, I was just having worked in magazines now for almost 20 years. I was just, I mean, I 20 year anniversaries are the most irresistible hook. So <laughs> I knew like, you know, that was one of the reasons why we knew we had to get the book out early this year. I think, I think maybe we would have gotten out even earlier. I mean, it only came out a couple of weeks ago. Maybe we should have gotten out in January or February, but 
it was certainly like, you know, I, uh, you know, the guys at the ringer had told me about the 1999 week and I was really excited. And there's, you know, there's a podcast called podcast, like it's 1999, which has been covering this for a while. So it's certainly, I never felt any ownership of it. Um, and it was pretty exciting to see that, like, I wasn't, you know, wasn't just the only person who felt this way, but I certainly, but I also knew that the people who saw these movies when they were 20, you know, when they're 18, 19, 20, 21, they're kind of the people who, uh, run the media now <laughs> so this is obviously yep, yep. it's not that different than when i was um you know like in 1989 after i just dealt with like five years of the boomers just talking about the 60s nonstop. <laughs> so sure. i knew that you know i knew that there was i knew this was, i knew there was going to be a lot i wasn't expecting like this much uh 1999 stuff but i guess you know but it's also like once that office space anniversary hit and the matrix anniversary hit oh, and yeah. i think you know, it's. I think there's certain movies this year. I think it's just going to keep going all year because, like, you know, the Phantom Menace is 20 years old in a few weeks. The uh, Blair Witch Project is 20 years old in a couple of months. You know, Ma- I mean, even Magnolia, which is like a movie people are obsessive about. There, all these anniversaries are just going to keep kicking up this idea, um, which I think is because, and I think it proves how much people, the, how the kind of personal relationships people have with these movies. It's just like it was for for a, for a certain generation. It was like it was that Easy Riders Raging Bulls year for people my age, where you're like, oh, the movies are talking, the movies are made for me, and they're talking right to me, <laughs> um, which doesn't happen a whole lot. Well, this has been a great conversation, but we do have to yes. wrap up. Furious that we have to wrap up, but that's what's got to be. I do want to <laughs> say we... though, just on that, on that, on what you and Bill had said, that um, I think my favorite innocuous Twitter like fight that I ever saw was just between the people who were like, "Guys, twentieth anniversary of the Matrix," and then all the other people who were saying, "I think you mean twentieth anniversary of Ten Things I Hate About You." <laughs> one of the few moments where the internet truly was good because i felt the like the 10 was... things the 10 kings fan base 10 things fan base is that is a very beloved movie very it's, very beloved it's a big yeah. I, it was a big part of my teenage years yeah oh yeah um, it's yeah it's definitely it's the giant it's the, it's the 16 candles say anything breakfast club for people who were in their mm-hmm. teens at that point it's insane all right well brian raftery again nailed it <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us it is thanks been... guys this is a lot of fun yeah, well, thank you. you know, anytime you want to come back, write another yeah, book. We'll have know. you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. This is great. No problem. So that's it for today, ladies and gentlemen. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the Film Stage Show. As always, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Film Stage Show. Go there. Give us your money. Not only that, don't forget that we are brought to you by Movie, the online streaming cinema. They got some great stuff on there. They got their... <laughs> What did you call it? Blue? <laughs> By NWR series. Blue. Yep. <laughs> there, what is an auteur series also has Carlos Regatas, Silent Light, and Battle in Heaven. And uh, don't forget the unusual subjects. They're really cool, eclectic documentary series that is going on right now. For a free 30 trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. That's movie slash filmstage. But that is it. Again, don't forget that you can pick up Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen at a book dealer near you or online. And don't forget to follow author Brian Raftery online at Brian Raftery. And now we'll tell you where you can follow all of us between now and the next time. We'll be talking about Under the Silver Lake, starting off with Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me at your local CVS Minute Clinic getting diagnosed. 
you can also find me on Twitter at CableBFG and on the Slack channel where hopefully I will uh, use my lost voice to channel into words on over text. Bill Graham can also be found in a local park playing chess and teaching life lessons to a young orphan. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Snydell. You can find me on Twitter at at Snydell and on Letterboxd, where I am no longer giving ratings to movies that we are reviewing on this podcast. So if you follow me, that might also give you a clue of what we are going to cover. So maybe I need to rethink this as well. But uh, yeah, it's always going to be a surprise. It's always going to be a surprise? Always. God damn you, Dale. (laughs) (laughs) How are we ever supposed to figure out how we're supposed to react to you? Anyway. Maybe I'll like another Marvel movie? (gasps) Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) When we finally talk about Spider-Man Far From Home. Yeah, sure. Fantastic. (laughs) All right. Um... (laughs) I just I was depending on you so much to never have to watch I, I another Marvel film. And I now know. we might have to do it. Yeah. I'll do it if Danielle comes on again. <laughs> anyway. Oh, I can be found on Twitter at Brian J. Rowan, continuing to make jokes about my own forthcoming book. Something about the leftovers. Still haven't come up with a funny enough title, so keep your eyes out for that. Um, of course you can find me on every bit of social media at Brian J. Rowan. Find my writing and all these episodes of the Film Stage Show at thefilmstage.com, including and Periscope. <laughs> I am not. I'm not on Periscope. <laughs> Don't know what I would do on Periscope, but I do. I did make an appearance on Dave Chen's Periscope. So again, if you want to hear me talk more about the moral failings of Endgame, please go do that. Um, don't forget next time you hear from us we'll be talking about Under the Silver Lake a movie that is currently on VOD so if you'd like to check it out in advance of us talking about it do that shit bro anyway that's it for today ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for joining us and tune in next week I will catch you I'll be waiting